Friends, let's open in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2, as we continue to study this important letter from Paul to Timothy. And I want to start in verse 8 and read from there. Hear now God's word. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you do the very thing that you promised to do, and that is to give us understanding in everything. We need it, and so we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I titled this sermon, Chains and Crowns. That's the only two points we're going to look at this morning, and those are going to very simply and very poignantly direct us where we need to go. Chains, what what Paul is dubbing chains, um, allows us to think about how we reimagine our Christian lives in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Chains spells the suffering that is involved in every single Christian life. But, but the theological bridge that gets us there, that, that points us in that direction, Paul is dubbing crowns. That's what we think about as we imagine what it looks like to walk on the course that, that God has called us to. So I want us to talk about those two things, and we're going to start with chains, looking at verses 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Now, if you've been paying attention during our series, during this walk through 2 Timothy, you will have seen the word suffering four times. That shouldn't surprise us knowing the context, right? Because Paul, the apostle, is writing from Rome, and he's writing from a prison cell. He's in a dark cold, damp, dank prison cell. His friends have abandoned him and don't want to be associated with a criminal. So it shouldn't surprise us at all that when Paul looks around to think about what to write and how to articulate the Christian faith, the word suffering comes to mind again and again. That doesn't surprise us. What might surprise us is that the Apostle Paul also again and again holds out suffering as the normal Christian experience. He's already said this twice to us. He says, share in suffering for the gospel. Share in suffering as a soldier of Christ Jesus. To to follow Christ, to follow God, is truly to enjoy unmatched blessing and favor and delight in him. Paul just described this same God in 1 Timothy as a God who gives us everything to richly enjoy, It is a beautiful thing to follow after Christ. But we need to match that idea with this metaphor that we're being given of chains. That it's a free gift to follow after Jesus, but it will cost us everything. We give up every ultimate claim on our own lives to follow after Jesus. We do. Now, for some of us, that will look like the literal chains and martyrdom that the Apostle Paul will experience. 
for most of us, I suspect, that suffering will be a lot more mundane, a lot more plain, vanilla Christian suffering, the version that Onesiphorus himself experienced, right? When we think about suffering in the life of a believer and what it means to follow after Christ, we think of the suffering that's involved in putting to death sin in our life, of not obeying the whims of our desires, but putting those things to death. We think about what it means to be generous with our time and our money, what it means to bear each other's burdens, what it means to die to our own rights and our image and our reputation. All of these things, if we're following after Christ, if we're faithful, spell suffering in the life of a believer. That's, that's a theology of chains, right? It's a free gift to enjoy the gospel and the salvation that God gives us, but it will cost us everything in this life. The relevance for Paul to be saying that to Timothy, both of them are suffering, and we in turn, as we see this broader picture of suffering, um, are experiencing this too. The relevance of that is so poignant because it reminds us in a very serious way that if we are indeed suffering, if we are indeed in pain, if we are hurting, that does not mean that God is absent, right? it could mean that we are smack dab in the middle of Christ's cruciform model. It could mean that we are doing what Jesus said, that is, take up your cross and follow me and die daily. To suffer is not to feel the absence of God. Often, it is the presence of God in our Christian walk. And so when Paul describes himself, he uses the word criminal. And the Greek word he uses there is a word that's typically reserved for only the most heinous criminals. These are criminals who are bound for execution. And the only other place in our New Testament that we find this word criminal is to describe the men who flanked Jesus on the cross, the thieves who were going to be crucified for their crimes. That's, that's what word Paul uses to describe himself. As he remembers Christ Jesus, as he reimagines what life looks like in pursuit of Christ, he pictures himself on a cross. He pictures himself dying the death of trusting in Christ and rising to new life in him. That's our, that's our theology of chains, and we find as believers together the normalcy of suffering. But the way he gets us there is, is a theology of crowns. That's what I want to talk about next. Because Paul is, is really gently pushing fragile Timothy and us forward to understand these things. These are, these are heavy things to grasp, to think about my life in Christ as a life in chains. And so he builds this theological bridge to get us there. You see it in verses 11 through 13. And it's this very tight, poetic construction. It almost looks like the answer to a catechism question, something that was used from time to time as Paul redeployed this thing. I don't know if you guys are on Facebook or you see those kind of goofy Facebook quizzes that um, you ask, you answer a, a series of random questions, and then you learn what character of a book or a movie you are. You know what I'm talking about? Answer a bunch of questions, and you'll find out which Muppet character best describes your table manners, you know, or other important things that we're doing during our workday. Um, that's what I want to do right now with this passage. I'm going to read this little tight construction in 11 through 13. I want you to listen carefully, and I want you to tell me what line struck you the most. What jumped out at you? Where did you linger as you heard this thing, okay? I'm going to read it again. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. 
If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Think about that for a moment. Which, which line in there of those four grabbed you? Which, which construction really, really struck you as you heard it? Because all of us bring more baggage to our Bibles than we care to admit, right? All of us come with questions and concerns on our mind, and when we open up our Bibles, we're really asking our own questions more than hearing the questions that the Bible is asking us. And so for all of us, we resonated with one of these lines or another. Some of us, man, we really readily resonated with that first line, the call to come and die to Jesus to live to him. That, that gets our gears going to think about martyrdom. For others, we resonated with the triumph in 12a. If we endure with him, we will reign with him. That's a note of triumph. But I suspect for some of us, and maybe a lot of us, 12b was a bit unnerving, and it really put a finger on, on a deep fear that many of us have in our Christian walks. It says this, If we deny him, he also will deny us. Did that line strike any of you? Did that feel like a a note of discord in this passage? I I think many of us, if not all of us, have feared this from time to time. We think if this is really true, if if a Christian can deny Jesus and walk away from him, and, and when I gather on a Sunday morning, I'm around these wonderful, faithful, believing Christians, then when I think about what the weakest link in the chain of faith is, it's gotta be me, right? because I know it's not the person sitting next to me. If anybody in this room is going to deny Jesus, it's probably going to be me. Well, if you've ever thought that or struggled with that, you're actually in very good company. Because I'm always struck by one of the last scenes of Jesus' earthly ministry. You'll remember that he gathers his 12 disciples who have been with him for 12 years, and he brings them to the upper room, and they're preparing what is going to be the Lord's Supper. And in the midst of setting the table and, and bringing out the bread and the wine and all the elements for that feast, Jesus drops an absolute bomb on these men. He says to them, one of you will betray me. I mean, can you imagine sitting at that table with 11 other guys that you have done ministry with for three years and hear Jesus say that? Can you imagine if I would have stood up here this morning and said, frankly, guys, there's one person in this room who is going to deny Jesus. I know that. I mean, that's terrifying to hear. But you think about these men, all of these men have left family and homes to follow Jesus. They've been with him for three years. All of them have witnessed incredible miracles, right? They've seen healings and feedings and exorcisms. They've seen people raised from the dead. If any men could claim faithfulness to God and his Messiah, it would have been these 12 disciples. And yet, of these same men, we read in Matthew, and they were very sorrowful, And began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? Am I the one who is going to betray you? Am I the one who is going to deny you? Is it me? Are you talking about me? To a man, these champions of the church, each felt that they had been utterly exposed before Jesus. Each of them felt that Jesus knew something deep within them, that they themselves would indeed betray him. So if we read first verse 12b and we, we tremble, or, or it, it, it 
it points a finger deep into our hearts and the fears that we have. We're in the company of these other saints who have felt this for a long, long time. What does it mean to deny Jesus? What are we talking about? Because our passage says if we deny him, he also will deny us. But then it says if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Now in my mind, denial and faithlessness, they sound pretty similar to me. But according to our passage, there is an eternal difference between those two, right? To deny Jesus is apostasy and damnation. To be faithless, well, that's faltering in our Christian faith, but ultimately that's salvation for us. To deny Jesus is to disown or repudiate Jesus and his gospel. That's what it means to deny him. It's to completely disown, reject, repudiate him and his gospel. And this is not to be confused with sin. We often collapse these two things together. We're not confusing denial with sin. All Christians sin. All of us knowingly rebel in our lives. All of us make little of Jesus in front of other people so that we can save face and make a conversation not uncomfortable. All of us believe false things in part about Jesus or of God. All of us add to the gospel of grace, either pride in our goodness or despair in our badness. These sins and a thousand more like it are real. They're despicable. They're unbecoming of a born-again Christian, and yet they describe every single person in this room. All of us will walk through this life with these sins like a festering wound that's rebandaged again and again in repentance. This is sin. This is not denial. I've never been a fan of the term losing our salvation, right? We talk about, can a person lose their salvation? Did this person lose their salvation? Um, There's no such thing. That's kind of language you would use about your wallet or your car keys. Did I lose these things? You can't lose your salvation because you weren't the one to find it in the first place, right? Jesus found you. Denial is something completely different. It is to categorically reject Jesus to cease to follow him, to disbelieve in him or his gospel, or to invent a different God or gospel to follow. That's completely different. And the fate that awaits those who do deny Jesus, who reject him and walk away, is worse than any of us could know. We talked about that judgment scene two weeks ago when every single person in this room will stand before the judgment seat of the living God and we will see at his right hand his Messiah, the reigning Christ Jesus. And for those who have denied Jesus, when we do come before that throne to give an account of what we have done in this body, good or bad, Jesus will say of us, I don't know this person. I don't know him. I don't know her. I don't know them. They're not one of mine. Friends, this is real. Men like Figilus and Hermogenes, who we read about in chapter 1, and possibly men like Hermanius and Alexander in 1 Timothy, this fate awaits them for rejecting and walking away from Jesus. For them and all who deny Jesus, the curse of Psalm 52.5 lands on them like a promise. God will break you down forever. It is real and it is terrifying for those who deny and walk away from him. 
If somebody in our midst talks like a Christian, sings like a Christian, smells like a Christian, but ultimately walks out of this room and wants nothing to do with Jesus or his gospel, that person proves that they were never one of God's people to begin with and they have denied him. This is a serious and a heavy thing to think about. But I don't want this, this verse 12b to swallow our entire section, right? Because there's so much more here for us to hear and receive. Because if we have really repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus, our text says we will live with Jesus and we will reign with him. There is a crown that will be fitted on the head of every single born-again believer and we will reign with Jesus in glory forever and ever and ever. We are kings and queens in Christ Jesus. That's true. But Paul, even as he's writing this to Timothy, a man who is alone and despairing and maybe even doubting his own faith, I think that, that Paul understands and respects that Timothy can't really absorb crowns right now. It's, he's so far distant in Ephesus from the glory that awaits that we might as well be talking about riding unicorns on rainbows for all Timothy is concerned with. He, he just doesn't see that and doesn't feel that. And so we round out this, this theological bridge that Paul is building with what I think is one of the most beautiful verses in the New Testament. Verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. For faithless, he's faithful, because he cannot deny himself. I grew up outside of Washington, D.C., near the railroad tracks. I'm not sure which side of the tracks I was born on, but we played on the tracks, so it didn't really matter. Um, but we would, if a train was stopped, we would climb all over it. If it was going slowly, we would jump on it and ride it for a ways and then jump off of it. My parents were in the front row in the last service, and they were just appalled to learn about this section of my childhood. Um, but we'd put pennies down and let the trains run over them and collect them afterwards. One day, a buddy of mine and, and I were going to the tracks, and we saw a train um, coming at a pretty good clip, but it was far enough away for us to set in motion a plan. Um, and we thought to ourselves, what would happen if we derailed this train? What, what would happen if we knocked it off the tracks and it spilled over and we got to basically split in half anything that comes out of this train? <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, a train is basically like a pinata on wheels. And so we together, me and my friend, we grabbed a, an enormous railroad tie and we put it across the tracks and then we ran and jumped in the bushes and we started watching. And the train is speeding along, approaching faster and faster and faster. And you know how the adolescent male brain works? How you put something in motion and then you begin to process it mentally? That, that was happening in the bushes because as I saw this, I was horrified. And I realized this is a really, really bad idea. Like if this train falls over, people could get hurt. And there's probably a special place in prison for kids who knock trains over. Uh, and I was terrified, and my heart was beating, and I didn't know what to do, but I was frozen in an action. I couldn't run out and grab the railroad tie, and I watched in horror as the train comes hurtling down the tracks and hits that railroad tie and flings it off the tracks like it was a toothpick. I mean, the thing just explodes into splinters and falls off to the side, and the train doesn't slow down a single millisecond. Well, I know it's a goofy illustration, but, but don't let anything we've just said about denying Jesus 
encroach upon the theology that we find thundering through all scripture, and not least 2 Timothy chapter 1 that speaks about the eternal timeline of God's salvation that was set in motion from before eternal time. God's redemption comes out of eternity past like a 10,000 ton freight train hurtling down the tracks. And the entire sum of our sin, our fear, our doubt, our abdication of the mission of God and what he has called us to, all of it in the whole spells one lonely railroad tie across those tracks. And it doesn't matter if we're in the bushes crying or laughing when the train of redemption comes, the results are the exact same. It will blast through death, life, angels, rulers, things present or things to come, powers, heights, depths, anything in all creation, and it will bring this salvation to completion. Because Jesus is faithful. Even if we are faithless, he cannot deny himself. Did you hear that? To deny a born-again believer a crown to reign forever is tantamount to the Trinity disowning one of its memberships. The Father, the Son, or the Spirit will most likely part from the Trinity before a born-again believer is snatched out of Jesus' hands because he is faithful, friend. You will wear a crown. Let's pray together. Father, we come from all walks of life this morning. Even as believers, some of us are fearful. Some of us are apathetic. Some of us are depressed and anxious. Some of us haven't given a second thought to your gospel or your salvation this morning. What an incredible thought to be reminded that your redemption is coming and that you will deliver us because you are faithful and you will not deny yourself. Let us revel in this truth, we ask in Jesus' name.